Welcome to the Let's Grab a Cup podcast. My name is Adam Sturgeon. I'm a police sergeant in Southern California. And my goal is to affect change within organizations so that we can have the confidence in the work that we do each day and make a positive impact on the community. I believe that change starts from within, and I know that we can do great things. Each of us has a story, a challenge that we have faced in our lives or in our careers or in the relationships that we've built around us. I would love to sit down and hear your story so that other people can learn and grow in their own lives. If you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, please email me at sturgeonwellness at gmail.com. If you have the desire to lead others and affect change within the law enforcement community, then contact me today. I would love to hear your story and sit down and grab a cup with you. So you find me on Instagram at, at let's grab a cup or at AP underscore Sturgeon or at sturgeonwellness.com. All right, have a great day. On today's podcast, I speak to James Foster. Uh, he goes by Jimmy. So Jimmy Foster was a police lieutenant um, in the city of Long Beach and retired after 25 years of service. And prior to becoming a police officer, he spent eight years in the Navy um, after graduating from the Naval Academy. And James's whole family uh, grew up in Long Beach. I mean, his dad and brothers were both police officers, and he followed in their footsteps and what was great about talking to Jimmy was be able to explain um, or kind of tell him how um, he impacted so many people around him. And it was just the fact that he treated everybody with respect and he actually showed that he cared and fostered those relationships and mentored the people um, that he worked with. But he also, cre- he also created a really good relationship with the community he served, working in one area really for most of his career and just really knowing the people he worked around. So, I think that this is a great episode with with Jimmy, and I hope you all enjoy it. I really appreciate him coming on, and I hope you all get something out of it. All right, enjoy this episode. Welcome to Let's Grab a Cup podcast, where we talk about leadership, authenticity, resiliency. We provide a place to hold space for one another. I'm your host, Adam Sturgeon, so why don't you grab a cup of coffee or tea or whatever suits you at this moment. Let's dive in. Well, hello, everybody. My name is Adam Sturgeon, and this is the Let's Grab a Cup podcast. Today, I have uh, a good friend of mine, a mentor. Uh, his name is James Foster. He was a police officer for 25 years, retired as a lieutenant, uh, started his early life in the Navy, and was there for about eight years. And um, he actually was the POA president in the city of Long Beach, where he revamped the POA office that we sit in today, which is kind of cool. So welcome. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Adam. Appreciate it. So, I mean, a lot of people, especially the people that we've worked with, are really interested to hear your story. Uh, One thing that I I talked to you recently about is this idea that uh, people really looked up to you as a leader. And I don't even know if you knew that before we spoke. I mean, I think you kind of had an idea that you uh, took care of people because that's that comes from your heart. But people actually still remember you today and talk about you as like a really good leader on our department. And I just want to express that. I really appreciated all the leadership that you showed us and showed me personally. Oh, man, that is extremely kind. I, uh, you know, you always hope you leave your mark on the department somewhere and can benefit people uh, wherever you have an opportunity, but uh, that's really heartwarming to hear. I really, I really appreciate that. Yeah, and uh, so I guess we could start where you, where you started. So, why, how did you get to being a police officer? How did you start in the Navy? Where did you grow up? Let's start with your story. Okay, well, my uh, story always starts in Long Beach and starts with the Long Beach Police Department. In fact, it 
part of the irony of my story is all of my story started with not being a police officer. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, really? <laughs> so, um, my grandfather was a product of the Great Depression, grew up in the Oklahoma, Arkansas area, and as a young man was basically broke and needed some hope and joined the Navy. And the Navy brought him here to the Long Beach Naval Station where he served just before World War II. And when he got out of the Navy, he's here in Long Beach and looking for a job. And uh, at the time, the Pike was down in the downtown area, and he got a job working for a loose light line. And as he was in Long Beach, he wanted to get on something more permanent, and the police department was available, and he was kind of that young man of value and, and got on the police department, started our history, our family history with the Long Beach Police Department. And the irony was uh, right about that same time World War II started, and he tried to get back in the Navy, and they told him, uh, you're too old, your time in the Navy is done, thanks, but no thanks. And so he stayed on the police department, and uh, did a full career, grew up, uh, built his own home. And my father grew up and uh, had a couple of homes with him down in, uh, uh, right across the street from Poly High School, and then later over on the, the west side. And so my father, uh, growing up watching his father on the police department, he realized early that this is what he wanted to do also. So after graduating high school, my father joined the police department. So I got two generations, grandfather, father, Dad has three sons. I'm the oldest of the three. And so the natural progression would be, well, you're going to be a police officer too. And I was like, I think I'm going to do something different. So they told you pretty early on, like, that's what they wanted you to do? No, they never told me that. But, you know, when I grew up in my household with my brothers, our stories at the kitchen table were all police stories. And the friends of the family were dad's friends on the police department. So it was just part of the built into our upbringing was all the bells and whistles that had to deal with dad's job. Right. And... So there was never pressure from my family to do it, but certainly I looked up to my father and recognized this was an opportunity for me, but I'm, I wanted to do something a little different. And uh, I was fortunate. Did, I did well in school, in, uh, in a Long Beach high school, and the school at the time had a computer that you could go to and put in all the things you're looking for for college. And so I kept doing that. And every time I would do it, it would spit out the same answers. You ought to look at... Uh, West Point. You ought to look at the Naval Academy. You should look at the oh, really, yeah, all the time. And I'm sure part of it was I was putting into the computer what's free, because <laughs> <laughs> we didn't have a lot of money to go off to some big school. And uh, <clears throat> so as I got closer and closer, and college was more and more of an opportunity, it was my other grandfather, my maternal grandfather, who had also been in the Navy. In fact, he had been at Pearl Harbor on Battleship Row when it was bombed. He was on the USS wow. T- Tennessee which was catty corner from the Arizona as a young man in the engine room when the bombing took place. And so uh, as I got letters of acceptance to the Naval Academy in West Point, um, it was that grandfather who put his arm around me and said, you know, you're going to have to go Navy, right? He just kind of teasing me like that's, that's the one. And it was his little nudge that made that decision easier for me. And off to the Naval Academy, I went to start basically a, a different career outside of the police department with the Naval Service. That's not an easy feat, being accepted to West Point and the Naval Academy. I mean, I know that we had like one person in our whole uh, school that was accepted at West Point. I don't know if anyone applied for a Naval Academy, but I know that was extremely hard, like tough, like competition. So to, to get accepted to both, that's amazing. Yeah, thank you. I, I had a Dudley Do-Right string kind of at that age, you know, and I'm, so I I did my academics right and played some sports. And really it's just a, a lot of fortunate things fell my way to get that opportunity. It wasn't just all me. It was... You know, people got behind me and then wrote letters of commendation and recommendation and things that 
got me an opportunity in the door. Is there anything like for people like kids right now who are trying to do that, that they, you would say, Hey, specifically get involved in certain organizations or certain things that would kind of guide you that direction. So if you're looking at a service Academy, they still are looking at the whole person. So you could be a straight A student with great SAT scores and that's not enough. And you could be on the varsity team for whatever. That's still not enough. They want to know what do you do, not just in school, but with your spare time. So are you leading an organization somewhere else? Are you starting an organization somewhere else? Are you involved in uh, church things? Are you philanthropy? So they, they just want to make sure that who they're selecting has a kind of a leadership background and they're ready to go into the next level of leadership. That makes sense. I think that's where I know I like would drop the ball. My parents would be on me about Hey, make sure you do the X, Y, and Z. And I would kind of like, uh, I would, I didn't think how, I didn't know how important it was at the time, even to this day, just being consistent with the organizations you're involved in and community service and giving back to the community and how much makes you a well-rounded person for different kinds of types of colleges or universities or West Point or Naval Academy. So that's, that's a good point. Um, so you got into the Naval Academy, you chose the Navy his grandpa told you. Well, I was curious about so your grandfather. How, how long was he a police officer in Long Beach? So on the paternal side, my father's side, um, he was on for 24 years, I believe. I got the specific dates in my phone. Uh, but just around that World War II time into the uh, 60s. And he was a little older when he got on the police department and did some of his time in patrol and then spent a good chunk of time as a forgery fraud detective at a time, if you go back historically, uh, forgery fraud was really a major crime booming in that post-World War II time. It was, if you watch the newspaper headlines, it was a lot of the major crime. So he was involved in all of that and then eventually was the booking sergeant near the end of his career. Oh, really? Yeah. And then your dad came on what year? Uh, I got to check the books. Oh, again. Okay. This back in like 66, 67. He came on with uh, Helmut Schroeder. They were in the same <laughs> class, yeah, That's so way back when. All right, so you so you took, chose the Naval Academy, and you're what eighteen? Yeah, in fact, uh, just a, f- a little bit under eighteen. Oh, really? Yeah. How's that experience going into? It seems like like a pretty like high stress situation for a young man. So it's a it's everything you would think it would be. It's very intense. Um, it's your whole day, unlike another college experience where you may be a couple college classes and then some fraternal stuff. It is up in the crack of early in the morning. It runs especially that first year, very intense all day through all your academics. At night, there's always professional training, and it's lights out at a given time, which is almost one of the standing jokes at the academy because when you're a freshman and it's lights out at 10 o'clock at night, that's when your flashlight comes out and you're still studying until 1 in the morning trying oh, to really? catch up. Yeah, So it's, it's um, for people coming in at 17, 18, you get very mature very fast because there's no other way to survive the experience. Yeah. Uh, what kind of classes do they put you in? I'm not, is it just basic? Do you choose like a major? How does that work when you're in the Navy? Yeah. So the Naval Academy has a small group of majors to choose from. It really doesn't matter what you pick. You're going to get an engineering background regardless. So I was a, I was a liberal arts political science major and I studied national security studies in the Soviet union as it was collapsing. In fact, that's part of the joke is I, I was studying the Soviet Union, and then the Soviet Union disappeared by the time I graduated, so I kind of was a history major, I guess. That's funny. <laughs> uh, but I took more engineering courses than I took political science. So you'll take mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, and uh, all the sciences, 
And when you have time, you'll take courses while you major. I'm just fixing some technology stuff here. No big deal. Yeah. Um, okay, so you are starting this out. You have a pretty rigid schedule. And um, is it how big of a group are you in? Is it like a, I'm imagining like a platoon or are you, are you in a smaller group? And how does this work? Are you designated to go a certain direction based on what you score when you go in? As far as transitioning into the actual Navy? Yeah, or when you're in the duty. Because I know, I, I'm, from what I have heard, because I'm not in the military or wasn't in the military, uh, when you're in these type of academies, you come out as an officer. That's correct. That correct. So then how do they choose you to go to certain directions while you're there? So during your Naval Academy experience, you're constantly getting graded and ranked in a bunch of things. Your academics, your leadership scores, your professional scores, your athletic scores. And when you get to the last semester of your senior year, they line you up by your order of merit in your class. So you have a ranking within your class. And you're going to choose on service selection night what you're going to do. And so there's really four selections. Surface Navy, Air Navy, Submarine Navy, or the Marine Corps. And you have a flavor of what you're going to do ahead of time because you've had the kind of prerequisites for some of those tracks, but you're not guaranteed until you actually walk in the door and sign on the line. So if you're going to be a surface guy like I was with Navy warships, your number's called, you went to the surface warfare room, and on the big board was all the ships in the Navy with open spots. So you would then choose, that's the ship I'm going to go on at that home port, and they take it off the board and you got selected. Now the next guy comes in and that one's been removed. So he has what's the remainder left. Oh, wow. Is it by seniority or is it by a certain type of like, do you choose your ship based on your, what you're good at? Or I'm not sure how that would work. So through the Naval Academy experience, you're, you're learning all about warships and what they do. And some guys want to go onto things that, you know, shoot big missiles and others want to go on things that are sneaky and do small stuff. I knew and this is kind of overly technical. I knew what kind of engineering plan I wanted, what kind of warfare package I wanted with the ship. And I wanted a ship that wasn't in dry dock getting repaired. That was actually ready to go out and do things. And so when I showed up to pick my ship and I looked to see what was available, I found one that met all those check marks and it just happened <laughs> to be the USS Paul F. Foster. So I was the Foster what? on the Foster. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> That's a true story. <laughs> Any relation? The there was no relation, but I told everybody there was in the hopes that, you know, my grandfather owns this ship, so it'd be nice to be. <laughs> Come on. That's so funny. <laughs> so what, would, what kind of ship was it? So a Spruance class destroyer. So what part of what drew me to me was it was a uh, Tomahawk cruise missile shooting ship. Oh, that's cool. So even though the ship was really designed initially to find and hunt submarines to protect the aircraft carrier from submarines, it had changed its mission into uh, an attack ship with these cruise missiles and so i knew we were we we're going to be at the tip of the sword and that's where i wanted to be um so you talk about being in this is what time what year was this so when i selected the ship or got on the ship there's two different things. oh okay i guess both yeah so i selected the ship before i graduated from the naval academy with a few months to go and then when you graduate you end off going to a specialty school to learn whatever your job is going to be on that ship and at the time I'm at that school is when Desert Storm broke out. And so I'm in contact with the ship who is now racing across the Pacific with the USS Ranger Aircraft Carrier Battle Group to get to the war before it starts. Hadn't started yet, but they're on their way. And so they're telling me, finish your school, and you're going to get on the plane. You're going to meet us in the Persian Gulf. And we don't know when the war is going to start, but we're going to be there, so hurry up and get out here. And that's about how it played out the 
My ship was there. <clears throat> the opening nights of the war fired on the opening salvos of Tomahawk cruise missiles, and I met the ship about, uh, I got to look at the exact numbers, or something like 10 to 14 days into the war. I flew out to the really? war zone and, and got on the ship. And um, how do you get on to a ship in the middle of a war zone? Like, I'm just imagine, I can, all I have reference for is movies. So you're, yeah. you're, you're, you're painting a picture here for me. So yeah. how, do you, how do you get onto a ship during a war zone? So I flew into Bahrain, which is a little island nation off in the, in the Persian Gulf. And a couple of buddies of mine ended up in a POW camp that was a makeshift way station for people coming in. Um, they hadn't picked up POWs yet, but they were preparing. And then as the helicopters would come in, they would ferry you out to the ship. So we were in the POW camp for about a a day or a day and a half, and then the group of us going to my warship were picked up and flown out to the ship. Wow. What was that like, like in the middle, knowing that this war was going on and you're now, you don't see the beginning of it. You know what's happening. You're in the middle of it when you get there. Yeah, very intense. I mean, you're, I'm 21, if that, years old. I'm immediately in charge of about 40 people in a shooting war and about the only things I brought with me other than a couple of uniform changes was your gear that you needed for chemical warfare because at that time historically there was a real chance a real fear that we were going to get uh, hit with chemical weapons so you know you brought your your big bags on board and really half of those bags was just your chemical warfare gear to get there so it was the real deal and uh, there was no time to you know, be young and adventurous and enjoy the moment. It was from the second you got there, it's time to work. It's intense. So as a new guy on the ship, do they have you like learning with somebody else or are you just automatically in charge of something? Um, more of the latter. Uh, you've been prepared for these years of leading this group and the senior enlisted guys on the ships really run the ship. These guys know what they're doing. They need you to help manage, organize, kind of lead the group, but they are the true professionals in running their gear and the thing on the ship. So when I got there, ironically, the captain of the ship was also changing over at the time. And the new captain and I had previously met. He had worked at the academy. I knew him. And for the first few weeks, as I'm getting my sea legs and trying to figure out, he uh, took a liking to me and he asked me, uh, I need you to go somewhere for me. Okay. And he goes, there's a specific group of guys on the ship. They've had a lot of problems. Uh, the last leadership has had some difficulties and uh, I got to get this fixed. I don't have time to mess around. So congratulations, you're in charge of these groups of guys. <laughs> go, wow. go fix this and report back to me. And, uh, and off I went. Yeah, was, what, was the, what was the issue? Do you remember? Yeah, they, um, this is the, they call it the deck team or the first division. And these are the guys who run all the anchors and the boats and the, uh, the, the lines that tie the ship up. And they're really the muscle group of the ship that do this really heavy, hard labor. And they did not have a a senior enlisted guy, kind of the, the father of the group, to really lead them for a while. And they'd run amok. And so things were not getting done right. At the same time, they were getting worked to death. Uh, there's so much going on. And they were undervalued as far as the amount of effort they were putting in. And so they needed some morale boosting. They need some leadership to say, we really got to do this. This is important. And uh, they were really just dying to be um, led in a new direction instead of kind of running amok in all different directions. And how are they receptive or not receptive of you coming in from the Naval Academy as not like coming out as an officer and they've been out there? How do they, do they, is it pretty accepting? Cause I know 
military is different. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, that's what I'm curious. <laughs> no. These are battle-hardened, gristled guys. Right. Even young men. You know, they're some 17, 18 themselves. And others are 40. And here comes this 20-something-year-old kid who knows nothing, right? <laughs> yeah, you've... You've had the naval camera, that doesn't mean anything. You, I, I always joke with people that uh, you can read a lot of books about swimming, but it doesn't matter until you get in the yeah, pool. Right. Now you're going to swim. And so my first job was really not to tear them apart. It was to try to find ways to get things, get them help. And probably one of the luckiest things I got was I got a very good senior enlisted guy that joined later and was very helpful in getting this reorganized, giving them someone to respect technically. Right. And at the same time, I was working to get them training that they needed and uh, rest when they needed. These guys were working 20, 22 hours a day, so they needed some time to exhale. I can imagine that's a challenge, like a challenge in itself, just being new on the ship and then dealing with guys who have been out there and then having that mindset of, like, you haven't stepped foot in this before and now you're trying to lead this these team. Um, so how long were you on the ship for? Uh, four years. On the ship for four years? Yeah. And was that Desert Storm the entire four years that you were on there, or what was going? How long was Desert Storm for when you were out there? No, Desert Storm lasted for uh, you know our part of it a couple of months. The war ended while we were still there, and then we maintained the peace. And then the Navy, as part of its natural cycle, rotates uh, deployed ships about every six months. And it can extend longer, you know, things happen. But when our normal rotation time happened, our uh, carrier battle group with the ranger was leaving the Persian Gulf and the next carrier group was coming in and we, we basically hand the baton off and we start heading home. So what are you doing on the ship in the meantime? Like when it's not, when it's not wartime, what are you doing with the ship? You're constantly training. Really? Just nonstop. Yeah. Okay. So you end and you, are you docked out here in Long Beach or are you docked or are you somewhere else? No, we are in Long Beach. So we eventually make our way through uh, Hong Kong and then Hawaii and then back to Long Beach and we're home ported there. When you come back, you're, you basically get a week or two to kind of get everybody some time off, and then you're back into your training cycle again for the next time you're going. And the normal warship training cycle at that time was you you leave on Monday morning, and you go out and train off of Southern California or whatever, and then you come back Friday afternoon. So you're gone all week, all the time. It's pretty intense. I remember at the time, my, uh, my wife at the time, on one of the years, I think I was home, like slept at home, uh, 24, 25 days of a year, of one of the years. The rest of it, we were out. Are you serious? Yeah, you're, you're married to the Navy. Yeah, I can imagine like how that works out with family and stuff. It's very tough. So, and you, did you decide to, after the four years that you were done, or what made you decide to transition out of the Navy? So it was a couple of quick factors. Uh, one, the Navy was drawing down in size. So we were going from Reagan's, large navy to the more economy structured navy and opportunities were kind of shrinking and my next rotation billet was probably going to be to some land-based billet and i i wanted to be in the fighting navy not the academic navy right um but at the same time i had seen a couple of my shipmates had uh children while they were at sea and they weren't there for the birth and other families had passed away and they weren't there for that and so while the Navy was shrinking and the enemy was almost non-existent. I mean, we had blown everybody out. There was nobody else to fight. Um, my eyes were open. Like, is there anything else to do? And I'm listening to the stories of my father and brothers and what they're doing here at the police department. And they're, they're making a difference. And, uh, 
despite my initial push to do something other than the police department, I couldn't help but be drawn into the the service aspect of the police department. Like that's that sounds like every day you're doing something to help, you know, tangibly in the community. I kind of like that. I'm not in the cubicle. I'm not reading about it. I'm actually out there making a difference. So I made the jump. Did you come uh, start the police department right after you got out immediately, or was it tr- some type of transition time? There was a little bit, a few months of delay because you just, you know, the academy only starts when the academy right. starts. And so I think I got out of the Navy in March or April, and then I joined into the academy in October of 94. So I didn't know that. I know uh, you said you're the oldest, but your brothers actually started here before you. Both, yeah. Interesting. So uh, did they, did you feel like you were looking up to them when they were here, like for guidance, or was it? You're still like the older brother. Um, well, no, I, I, I looked up to them. I appreciated and respected what they were doing. And, you know, one of the tangible moments for me was in the Navy, uh, flying off the warship for a briefing, long story there. But uh, when I showed up on land and turned on the TV, I was watching the the riots. And my father and brother were involved in trying to get, you know, some order out of the chaos there. And... Uh, and so I, I respected the fact that what they were doing was very difficult to do, even if they were my younger siblings. You know, right. we may have wrestled as kids, but as adults, I I knew that what they were doing had a lot of value, and I wanted to be a part of that. So uh, that wasn't so obviously ninety one, ninety two that that was happening. When, yeah, uh, when your brother was here. Yeah. So when you started the academy, what year was that? So I started in ninety four, October ninety four. All right. And you started, where did you work in the in the Long Beach area when you started? When I got out of the academy and started? Yeah. Uh, downtown, initially, um, Jack Ponce was my first field training officer. Um, Jack worked the same area that my father worked, just kind of on different days of the week. And so it pulled me in from the beginning into the right where dad worked for 30 years. And it was an eye-opener, right? It was a, It's when you think you know what's going on, and then you get out there and you're, you're in it, and you're like, wow, you know, this is scary and dangerous and awesome all at the same time. Was this when the, uh, they were doing one squad for the whole divi- whole city? They had just broken out into uh, a couple. I think south and west were still out of downtown, but east and north had their own spots. North was out of some trailers, and east was out of the old DMV office, which was you know tiny. But yeah. it was only south and west downtown. And uh, the odd part was back then is not everybody had a handheld radio. So you would you would check in and out a radio at the start of your shift. You'd go to the radio room and they'd hand you a radio and take your tag and mark it that you had radio. And at the end of your shift, you had to give the radio back, but there weren't enough radios for everybody. So as the day shift was still out, only one person, you or your training officer would have a handheld radio. Wow. And then a couple hours into your shift, you come in and try to get another one after they'd charged from the day shift. And here, here we're complaining about how radios don't work in certain areas. That's and, right. And you didn't, you didn't have a radio for, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's the normal thing. I, I used to laugh when my father would tell stories about the old days and with equipment and, and then, uh, now I'm telling the same stories. You know, <laughs> our, our KDTs had these tiny little, you know, three inch or four inch screens but and they're monochrome and and now look today we're complaining about the latest stuff we have not right. realizing where we came from that's so funny all right so you spent uh, the first years downtown and then um i know you ended up on the west side that you kind of spend most of your time out there on the west side yeah how long did you spend uh working west division i was a patrol officer in west for a little over 18 years and you you stayed in patrol yeah and you stayed in patrol by choice yeah 
I remember hearing stories that people would ask you, hey, when are you going to take the test to promote? And you're like, no. That's all correct. Yeah. I, thought, I always thought that was interesting because you, I mean, you created this really, like, I think, like, a really good trust with the community. Um, you knew your area. I think you worked well, You worked Beat 4. Beat 4 for that entire 18 years. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, I, I, there's only a certain amount of people that do that, that same thing. I think that it, it's really commendable just to choose that because people are always looking out. I, I talked about this the other day. People are always looking out for, like, what's next? Like, what's where am I going to next? Where, am, where What's my next job? What am I going to promote next? But you were you were good with taking care of your people in your area. Yeah. I mean, you get to know it on an intimate level that you couldn't do if you're just floating through. So you see the same people all the same times and the same people that are both on the criminal side and on the you know, neighborhood business side. And I, I liked going to work where I thought I knew the community so well that you could take the temperature of it and you know, like something's not right. You just have that sixth sense feeling of today, things don't feel right and that builds your ability to actually solve crimes in the community because you knew that you had to be prepared as opposed to it's surprising you it kind of goes back to that old like the old school days where people used to walk their beat you know like mm-hmm. like the small little blocks to walk their block and they knew everybody in the neighborhood yeah and i know that we we do get used to the people that we see every day like you see the same people every day um same businesses same criminals really every day. And so you kind of know like, Hey, what's this guy up to? Cause I know I rested him last week and he did this. Now he's kind of being hinky. I'm going to go talk to him and see what's going on. And having that trust or that, that understanding of your community is huge versus moving around. Um, so what, what did you learn most about being in patrol? So you, as you're well aware, you mature as you're a cop, you, go in with a lot of fire and a cape on and you're going to solve the world's problems because you know right from wrong and and you start to realize over time that everybody you're dealing with has a story and everybody's got troubles and you start to realize how blessed you are from the you know experiences you had with your parents in school and things and and I think that's part of the shattering the glass ceiling for me was going into homes that were so broken and such a mess and you're wondering how in the world does anybody survive out of this other than to get involved in more trouble? And then the frustration starts to sit in because then you want to fix that and you can't, you can't fix every problem of everybody on earth. And so, um, I, I was really blessed to have a mentor and a guy named Mike Ham and Mike had worked that beat for a long time and had a very mature understanding of, um, what your role should be. And your role is to make sure that you're fighting crime, especially violent crime and felony crime, and helping people. And Mike was big on taking the time to talk to people and talk to them, not like you're some kind of an academic, but just talk. Right. And so that turned out to be really some of the best times of my career was not necessarily fighting the crime part, but taking the time to take a few minutes to talk to somebody who was into dope crazy or prostitution crazy or whatever and just get their story. Like, how in the world do we get here <laughs> do you feel like that it took you a while to get to that point or did you have that right off the bat when you started like that did you have that 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 openness to be able to talk to people right away or did it did you have to learn it over time no you learn it over time it's developed it's a maturing process that all the cops go through and then you know part of the tough part of our business is it's so negative it's so brutal what you're dealing with the worst parts of humanity on their worst days and you're 
doing that every day. Right. And it becomes almost a natural uh, defense mechanism for people to become very negative and very bitter and an us and them. And I appreciated having a few people around me who had a better vision. And Mike was one of those, you know, so it's, and, uh, so as you go through that phase in your career where you can't solve the world's problems, but what can I do is you get an opportunity to understand people a little bit better. And I like that. I like getting into that kind of human psyche of, whoa. and uh, I'm not sure if that's for everybody, but for me, it was um, educational, entertaining. It was learning about people that I probably would have never met before if I hadn't been in this job. What do you do with the, I know like, like you talk about negativity, but it's like negativity even within the department or the, the, your area, your people you talk to on a daily basis or your squad room. Mm-hmm. What do you, did you do anything specifically or did you try to do anything to combat that? So, you know, your example is certainly a part of it. Humor is certainly a part of it. Appropriate humor is right. even a more fine tune of it. I think what um, I tried to bring was a constant appreciation to the officers for what they do because you get so beat up as far as, you know, people thinking you're the problem when you're not, it's like being the umpire in a baseball game and everybody's yelling at you at every pitch and yet you're doing the best you can to try to get this right. And so all I really wanted to do, part of my theme was to let the cops know you're still a good guy. And when you go home and you look in the mirror, you've got to be confident that what you're doing is still the good guy. And I'm going to tell you when you've done something really good. And as I was a younger officer, I'd just tell you as a sergeant, I'd, I'd write the commendations and I'd let you know in your eval. But I don't want you to just come to work and grind through it. I want you to know that what you're doing makes a difference. And you chose a career that was something harder than what the normal person does, and, and it's appreciated. I think it's tough for, as a peer... I think it's tough for people to do that. I mean, I think as a supervisor, it's our job. Like it's our, it's, it's part of our job to mentor people and to give them that ability to understand like, Hey, we care, like you are cared for, even though like everybody else seems to be coming after you. Like I've seen, you know, that you're cared for, but as a peer, I think people don't do that. I don't think as much as they should. Um, so if you're as a peer officer, if you're able to do that, I think it's really important to like take the time and to have those conversations I mean, this is the first time I've been, I've heard most of the story. I've never, you know, I didn't know that your time in the Navy. I don't even think it was years on until I even realized you were at the Naval, Naval Academy. Um, but I just knew you as, you know, a patrolman and like what you did on the department. Yeah. Um, so you worked that area and you are dealing with all these issues. And what years are are this now that you're spending in, as a patrolman? So I'm going to add one point onto what you just said real okay, quick, yeah. which is uh, that is a culture within this department. I think it's shared policing all over the place that we need to fix, which is that the supervisor brings you those letters of comedy or the, the, the approval process. Right. And your peers are less likely to do that because I still believe the most powerful person in a squad room is the senior people in the room. And, and you know, in our culture, a lot of those guys in the squad room, they sit towards the back and, but their experience and their respect they bring to the squadron really sets a lot of the tone and they stay in the same places for a long periods of time. So if those senior people of the same rank are telling you that's really good, what you did there was really good. That has a lot of impact. And I hope that we build a culture that allows those senior people to put their arms around and mentor and coach. That's, that's powerful stuff. 
what do you think about the idea of like, cause I feel like there's a lot of younger officers these days who, even now when I was younger, I felt like, Oh, I come in. I'm, I felt like I knew everything, which I didn't. And I don't know how you felt when you came in, but I felt like, Oh, I know what I'm doing really early on versus really listening to the senior guys when they said, Hey, that's not a good idea or whatever it is. Like actually taking time to listen. So I think it goes both ways. It's like giving, making sure that you're going in with open ears and understanding that they have experience. They've seen this for years. They know, they know the area, they know the job and really hearing what they're, what they're saying and not just like brushing it off. Cause I think sometimes that, that voice gets lost and then they're less likely, the senior guys are less likely to wrap their arms around you because you've brushed them off and not taking their advice. That's right. And, you know, again, this is one of those fortunate things in life where I just had the blessings of my father's experience. So as I was going through war stories with him and stuff, and he would add bits of wisdom that he had learned the hard way. And he was right. Like when you go to a large family argument, there's a lot of emotion and people are running around and you don't know who to talk to. He goes, look for the older woman of the group, the grandmother or the mother, because no matter how hot and angry everybody is, they're probably still going to respect grandma. So if you walk in and, and she's the calm in the storm, you can tell the angry group, like, hold on, I'm going to treat your grandmother with respect. I'm going to talk to your grandmother first. Right. And you've set a tone within that chaos that's going to be helpful. Well, you know, that's pretty smart, Dad. And a couple times in my career I use that, and I'm glad he told me. <laughs> and a million of those little tips, but those were, that's good stuff, right? And and I I would listen to him. And so the opportunity for a younger cop who didn't have that, that benefit, but to listen to a senior cop when he says that and hear it, and understand it. That's smart. Well, one thing we didn't, I, I like that. And like one you're saying right now, I was thinking about when you were training, you were a training officer for several years as well. Right. Yeah. And just imparting that wisdom on the trainees as their new officers. Um, I think any of, any of that, those little tidbits, and I think people are going to get it out just listening to this right now. They might be like, Oh, that's, that's a good idea. Or maybe they knew it already. Fine. But I think it's good to just practice it and really hear it. Like, Oh yeah, I, I do. I should probably try that and see how it works next time. So I think it's a great, a great idea. Yeah. Um, so you're training officer for how long? 17 and a half. So almost the whole time I literally had a rookie to train as soon as I finished my probationary oh, period. Greg Craby, who later became a, a homicide detective. I'd been off training for days and the next class was coming up. Then like, congratulations. Here's your rookie. Really? Yeah. Wow. I think that's a hard, that's a hard sell right now to say, Hey, you've only been off for like six months and oh, yeah. you should be training. I, I, I look back on it. I, I wasn't ready. Right. <laughs> I, I had a lot of learning of my own to do, but uh, I was thankful because Greg was a, he had joined a little bit later in life. He was more mature than the average, you know, young kid coming out. And so it was a good marriage for the two of us to learn from each other. That's funny. How, um, how long were you out there? So you did 18 years and then that's when you decided to promote. Yeah. So what, finally pushed you to take the test because i know like i said before like people were asking you and you were saying no so i you're right i had intended to do my whole career uh in the streets um that's what my father did and that's was fine with me i was happy um it's kind of a multiple prong thing one was uh, steve james here at the poa who i was a trusted and respected friend and uh talked a lot of logic to me about career and where I could make a bigger difference on the department. And, and I listened to him. Uh, it was the pushings of some peers of, we need some good sergeants right now. We think you could be one. Could you promote? And then on a, on a personal level, uh, you know, painful, um, 
like many of our peers, I was going through marital difficulties and, and divorce. And it was time for really kind of a control alt delete start over. And, and this was the right time to do it. So I, I kind of against my own natural belief system for years was, you know, maybe I need to do something a little refresh and start over as a new position. I think a lot of us sometimes need a, a restart, you know, like I think that's important and uh, maybe seeing a different side of, of policing and what you were doing and mentorship. Um, so did you, where did you end up when you were promoted? As far as where did I go yeah. to work? Yeah. Where did you end up? Did you obviously stay in patrol. Yep. Um, did you stay on the West side or did you switch around? So I stayed uh, by chance on the West side. And as most new sergeants do, I went to graveyard, which was my first real bite at graveyard after 18 years in day shift. And so, you know, it's a different perspective, a different lens to look through at night and you know, exhausting. And I did a, a few months there and uh, bounced around a little bit until I landed in East Division days where I did most of my sergeant employment. Did this switch, did the reset help you like navigate the person, your personal life as well? Or did you, did that, did it give you that sense of re, or the restart that you needed? Yeah, but it was a, a process. It wasn't like an overnight experience. A graveyard for anybody who's worked it is tough on the body. It's just physically and mentally draining to work graveyard. And so I look back on that period more as it was a, a fog. <laughs> you know, you're kind of grinding through the days more than you are enjoying it. But I think that was the period of transition in my personal life. So it was a period of transition in my professional life at the same time. And, um, because it was such a fog, it gives you an opportunity to reflect a lot and, and learn a lot about yourself because you've been in the same routine for so long that there's probably parts within your routine you need to break. Right. And but, you know, part of it for me was I was a definitely a workaholic. I was doing police work. I was training at the academy with the basic academy, doing a lot of teaching, and I was taking that to the 27th degree of spending all my time really grinding through a lot of work stuff, and I needed the opportunity to to breathe, and that's that's when that control alt delete start over was that long period of time in there did you give yourself time on your days off to not be doing extra work here at the police department did you actually enjoy your time off or did and how did you use that extra time if you did so uh no <laughs> <laughs> i continued to work too hard and but my work transitioned from a lot of the training at the academy into the work at the poa and uh, when i came on to work with the poa and quickly became the vice president to Steve, who was the president, I, I started to take on projects there that involved not the rookie cops training, but the senior cops and all sorts of department policies and things like that. And um, it really wasn't a change of my personal life time uh, because it was, you know, I'm trying to figure out what am I going to do with it now that uh, I'm divorced and trying to figure out. Um, but it was a, a refocus of priority. So as I was spending time, I was starting to look for more quality time as a part of just sleeping and eating and going back to work. Right. So you started working at the POA or volunteering, I should say, at the POA um, when you got promoted or before that? It was before, uh, but it really took an intense swing once I promoted. Um, tell us about your time on the POA. Like, what did that entail? Because I know there's a lot of guys who don't know what... PO, I mean, we we know the POA is there. Yeah, <laughs> we know that they, the association for anyone that doesn't know, like our our union, um, that they're there and they're there for us. A lot of times, that's questioned. People don't know like the real sure. like the 
motivations and, you know, like I guess for you, while you were here, I'm not going to speak to the board today because we're, you're not on the board anymore, but while you were there, mm-hmm. um, how did like, tell us about that process and what it was like for you. So this is my analogy of what the POA is. I've used this a thousand times. This department is like a, a big football team and the chief of police is the head coach and his deputy chiefs are the assistant head coaches. <clears throat> the players, the people actually in the game, the officers, sergeants, and some of the lieutenants, um, they're playing the game. And they elect their team captains. And the team captains are the POA, and the POA president is the quarterback. And this whole process, this team wins when the players and the coaches are all on the same page. And I've, I've shown pictures of why did the you know, the Patriots succeed. Whether you like them or don't like them, they, they succeeded. Well, they were on the same. They all wanted to win, and they're going to do what they got to do to make that relationship works. The POA works nonstop on a million issues that deal with all our officers, everything from the next policy that's coming down that's going to affect them to their family members when they're in crisis to health benefits and pay benefits. And it is a... It's an exhausting problem that's 99% behind the scenes. (laughs) So every time the department is going to change a policy that, or the city that has to deal with anything that impacts your pay benefits or working conditions, and that's the big one, your safety, your uniform, your promotion process, any of these things, the POA is by law uh, involved in the negotiation process to get that policy right. And the number of policies that come through here multiple per week where you are, uh, I don't want to say fixing because that's the wrong word, but you are making sure the officer's voice is heard and things are getting done right uh, is never ending. You also have the nonstop uh, group of officers that come in with all sorts of issues. Uh, and these are the issues that your employer, the city, it's like, that's not my problem. <laughs> right. If you have marital problems, that's not my problem. If you have problems with your boss, well, work it out. Um, I, during my time here, I've had untold number of officers who have broke down in tears in the offices because they've got some sort of life crisis that needs help. And you know, part of your job here is to try to find them some kind of opportunity to get some help. Sometimes that involves conversations with the chiefs. Okay, I need a guy to get off the street for a little bit. He needs to get into a place where he can help resolve some issues. It's going to be temporary, but he, if we don't give him the break, you know, we're going to have a guy that's taking a lot of sick time and he can't get off. Um, other times it's having really tough conversations with your own cops of, yeah, I, I think you're in trouble and you're going to be in trouble and you need to start having these conversations with your family that there's going to be some trouble coming your way. Right. Um, there's... It's a problem because the, the public thinks that what the POA does here is some kind of a political machine that runs. And the politics part of this thing is so small and so honest and so good. It, you know, when people go to Sacramento, they vote on a thousand different bills that deal from, you know, how cows are fed in agriculture and how pecans are supposed to be grown and how dams are supposed to block water and then also all these other social issues. And nobody goes to Sacramento knowing all these things. They may think they know some stuff, but they really don't know. And so what you go up in Sacramento for that small part of this job to do is to make sure that before people vote, they actually understand the impact of what they're voting on. And what you find is 
They don't. They go up there thinking they know things, but they actually don't understand it. Like, if you, if you do this, do you know that this is going to have this negative effect on public safety within our own city? Well, no, that's not what they told me. That's why I'm here. I'm here to tell you the other side of this coin. You make your decision, but I'm telling you that this could have some negative consequences. I just want to make sure you have the information, and that's a lot of what we do is just make sure they get the information. Well, a lot of stuff you're saying, like as far as like going up to Sacramento on the bills, seems like they put bills out and they give you like a little summary, right? right. And that summary doesn't even include a multitude of stuff that actually is going to change the law, and yep. sometimes it affects police officers. Yep. Um. So being on the POA, um, as you were first just on the board as a, the, yeah, I came on for, as a director, just one of the the ten general directors yeah. for uh, a year, maybe two, and then. Uh, Steve whispered to me like, hey, I really think you'd be much more effective as the vice president, and I'd like you to run for what's going to be a vacant seat as the vice president, uh, which I eventually did, and then I was the vice president for, I think, seven or eight years. And then on to president. And then on to president. Oh, so so were you president as a sergeant, or had you promoted already? I had just promoted to lieutenant shortly before coming on. Okay, so you were still, you are working patrol as a sergeant, and you are here as vice president. Yep. Um, And then... How did that transition go? And what made you decide I'm going to take the lieutenant's test now? Uh, similar to before. I mean, this was Steve reminding me that this is smart for me personally and for the department to do this. Um, really, what it, it was a good opportunity is the POA represents officers, sergeants, and lieutenants. And the vast majority of that is the officers, which I had done for a, a long time. But before I came on, I thought it was probably going to be useful to at least have an understanding, true understanding, in their shoes of what a lieutenant does so that as I was representing them as the president, I would also have an understanding of those people that are within our group. Because I think sometimes the argument is that a lieutenant shouldn't be Mm -hmm. in that position. I think when Steve was there and then you were there, uh, but I don't. I can't think of one person that's ever complained about when you you were president of the POA. Oh, I could I could find a couple for you. <laughs> oh, I'm sure you I mean, I guess I I'm in a different circle, so I don't know. Whatever, people that don't like you, the, it's different throughout associations uh, you know, all over the, the Los Angeles Police Protectively, which is the LAPD union. They represent through lieutenants. Okay. On the sheriff's department with a lads, they only do the deputies, and then there's a separate association, the Professional Peace Officers Association, that represents their promoted sergeant's lieutenant. So it's not a universal truth throughout police associations, but at our size um, and so few lieutenants as compared to the officers, uh, that's what we choose to do here. And I think it's interesting because uh, I think that could be said on any level. Like you can have a sergeant in that position and say, well, now it's it's a supervisor that's yeah. representing versus one of the officers. Um, and people always talk about conflict of interest and what how that works. So how as a board do you – vote on every single policy that comes along your way or do you, how do you guys change, when you say you change policy, or you give them different words yeah. to use? So it's a, it's a very legalistic process. It's required by California state law. It's called a, a short term is a meet and confer process. This is a meet and confer state. So uh, management is going to change a policy. They have to notify you in advance. We're going to change this. The chief has said, this is where we're going to go. And they have to sit down with you and, I'm going to use a roundabout word, negotiate this term. So when you look at the department manual, this big fat book of rules, you see one big book of the department manual. What I see is 
hundreds of individual contracts signed between management and labor. We've signed off on these contracts. Now, there will be times when we don't agree. And I'm a no and you're a yes. And there's a legal process by which the department can say, we've met all the requirements to try to negotiate with you. And now we're going to impose it. And with that comes a lot of other you know, things that can happen. But the vast majority, I mean, the 99 percentile is we have gone back and forth negotiating what the terms of this new contract policy change are going to be. And we've come to an agreement where I can live with it. My people can live with it. Management's good with it. And we're good. So when you look at things, a really technical one was the body camera policy, which was new for us and very complicated and had a lot of political ramifications with the community. And what are we going to do? And I got to be honest, the first one that came through, and this has been years ago now, um, when I first saw it was problematic. It was, uh, had a lot of vague language, which was too too vague. It, it, it left an opportunity where the department thought it was doing the right thing, but the public could look at it and say, well, you didn't follow your own policy because it wasn't specific enough. And I didn't want to get into arguments with the public over what we were really trying to do. And so there was a lot of time looking at other agencies' policies to try to get ours specific so that we could make sure the public knew we were doing the right thing and at the same time, make sure our officers knew exactly what was expected of them as it started. And then as with all policies do, you you learn as you go and you, you alter it a little bit because it needs to get updated. We didn't think about that. Let's make sure that's in there. And it becomes kind of a living document. But the first one, it, it needed to be right as it got out the first time. And I, I look back on it and think, I think for something that was so fresh and so new, I think we got that right to start with. And then we can live with it and move forward and adjust as necessary. Yeah. I think there's, I'm, I think they even changed or they're changing it now. I yeah. think they're changing it because of how strict they want to be with the body on camera, which yeah. I found to have actually helped officers <laughs> with complaints more than, than not. So, yep. Yeah. Um, so yeah, those, those, all these little things come across your desk and you're dealing with these, you said multiple a week. Yep. Um, how much time do you spend at work? Like as a POA president, how much time are you spending here? As the vice president when I was still a sergeant or as the president? Both, either. So it was normal to do, as a sergeant before I became the president, do my 40-hour work week as a sergeant and a 40-hour work week as the POA vice president. I mean, it was that was not unusual. Um, what, you're saying you're working 80 hours? Oh, yeah. It was nonstop, nonstop. Even when you're home, you're, you're constantly working. Your phone is constantly working, and... You know that you're you're a conduit for information that's trying to get to the POA president for whatever thing. So yeah, I was very busy. Then when you become the POA president, it's all day, every day. There is no, no there's no rest. Button. No, no, it's all day, every day. How did that uh, how did that affect you when you're not working or you're trying to take time off or spend time with your family? So I'm not sure what that word is that time off thing. I'm okay. not sure. <laughs> that sounds like fun. <laughs> it's it's hard. Um, I was very blessed around that same time to meet a really wonderful uh, lady who I've since married, and we've been married for six years now, and and life is great. You know, yeah, we, 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 but we dated for uh, four or five years because it was tough. Right? We, we, I'm working so hard, and she's working very hard in her profession, and uh, and I I think life probably would have been much uh, easier personally if the time was more available for those kind of personal life because right. you're so invested in your work life. 
and solving everybody else's problems that when you come home, you're exhausted. And it's really part of what I've mentioned to the current POA president many times is if I had a regret, it's that you, despite the poles of the job, you have got to find time with your family, your kids, because when you look back on this, when you're an old person, you know, in your 90s looking back, um, you don't want to regret sacrificing family time for work time. There's right. always stuff that's going to be happening. You'll never do it all. How did it go when you were doing all this? You're making this whole building revamp. Did you, did you guys actually build a second story or was it already here? It was already here. It was just underutilized. So uh, when I took over, part of my mission during my time as president was I wanted to get this building upgraded and more usable. So we had more, we had the same square footage, but I want it to be more accessible to the members. We used to hold a board meeting downstairs and it would basically lock the members out from using the downstairs of the building because we were holding the meeting. And I didn't want that to happen anymore. And it was just time. It was kind of worn down. And so we went through the whole process of laying out a design, getting a contractor. And we actually liked the vendor who had used and rebuilt the credit union next door with some of their design features and their reliability, their word of mouth of being incredible. And um, then the day came and we had to clear out and vacate. And we were blessed to have good friends at the credit union who had some spare space that we could occupy for months. Yeah, I think and, I met you over there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kind of a, a funny design, but it's nice to have good neighbors who will help you out. And, you know, it took uh, half a year plus to get this place at least to a point we could move back in and even now uh they're they're still adding some little things here and there we just got the memorial wall for our fallen officers finished a a couple months ago um but i think the refresh of the building and especially the downstairs where we can host a larger group um that was a big deal i wanted the ability to get some joint squad meetings in that room so that people could see their poa leadership the department leadership face-to-face, and hear from them directly. So it's not just an email of the chief saying something. Right. I want to hear it from his voice. I want to see his body language. I want him to answer some questions that I have. And that builds that personal connection to people beyond just a, an email. Does our, um, I'm curious, a couple of questions I was thinking was like, does our president now still call you for advice? So he either calls me or I call him. We still talk a couple times a week, sometimes in texts and phone calls. Uh, I did the same with the guy who preceded me because there's always nuances to things. Oh, yeah, I bet. uh, The good news is um, Rich, who's the current president here, is probably one of the smartest guys I've ever met. And early, I was tapping him on the shoulder like, you started you need to start getting prepared for this seat because this place needs you to be here. And you're leaving. And and somebody's going to have to carry this on. Yeah. I can't be here forever. And just like my predecessor, he couldn't be here forever. And so a lot of places, other POAs have quite a fight when there's a leadership opening or there's a revolution or there's anger and people explode. And they, what has helped this place to be effective and, and be helpful is there's almost a, um, I'm trying to search for the right words here. There's a, a continuity that's been built here that is successful. The trust. It is the trust. And, you know, people knew Rich when he worked out in the field, and they knew Rich was a smart guy, and they knew he could get things done, and he's reasonable. That's that's really part of it. I trust you. You're a reasonable guy. You get it. And even if I disagree with you on something, I know you're a good 
person. And so you're doing things for the right reasons. And um, I've seen in other associations where there's an eruption and really the only guy they want in there is someone who's going to slam his fist down on the table and scream at people and get on the news about how angry he is at everything. And my experience has been that those guys very rarely get anything done. They actually feel good, but they don't get anything done. And so to have Rich here who, when crisis hits, when there is an officer who's been seriously hurt, when there is um, you know, a, a, a real anger within the department that needs to get properly corrected, that he is a guy who's very level-headed and reasonable and, and can converse on an adult level with the chief, the politicians, his own membership, the public. You know, he's that guy. Well, one thing I'll say about both of you is that um, anytime I've reached out, and I can't speak for everyone reaching out to you, but I assume it's for everybody that I've reached out to you or him, there's always a response. Like there's a, like you take time out of your day to call back or text back or whatever it is and to have the conversations, even if they're hard conversations, have the conversations and explain what's going on. Because I think a lot of people are, are, they either don't have the relationships with you, and I've had relationships with both you and him, so... It's maybe a little different for me, but I think people maybe like, oh, I'm not going to text him. You you ask him a question because you know him. But I think if any officer were to reach out, you would. I mean, maybe not this. Maybe not right now. You want your time off, but <laughs> if uh, for for Rich, I think he would definitely respond and and talk to you. You know, have that time for you. So I I appreciate that. For I think any president. I mean, I didn't really have that type of relationship with Steve, but. Any president's been here has shown that. So hopefully that continues with our department. Well, it's really one of the fears of the job. And uh, if it's me, Steve, or or Rich, we've all had it. People are bringing you their problems. To them, it's the biggest thing going on. It's a big deal. And if you have 800 cops, you really have 800 big deals going on. Right. And uh, you always fear. It's really one of the driving fears of you're going to let somebody down. And inevitably, you will. There's just so much going on. At some point, you're going to let somebody down who their issue was the biggest issue in their world. And uh, and those really hurt. Right? You really hurt when you let somebody down, and sometimes there's just nothing else you can do about it. You you've either haven't met their expectations, which may have been unrealistic in the start, or you got swamped with other work, and I, I didn't get back to you at the speed that I needed to. I didn't do it the way you wanted it done. And you can have a thousand successes. It's the one miss right. that you always remember and hurts. Well, it's not even just that. It's like you have that one miss, but that one miss is that guy going to squad room and talking about, hey, you didn't get back to him or didn't do sure. something or didn't answer his question or whatever it is. And so now that's maybe someone else that doesn't know you has that perception of you. So like, but knowing that your heart is in the right place, even if you make a mistake, it's it's all about like where you're really feeling. You know, it's like the intent. That's right. What your intent is, and I think that's why you end up having this understanding of politicians that's different than a lot of the public because the, the public loves to beat up on the politicians and sometimes when you get to know them you find that these people some of them right are really working hard trying to do the right thing some of them aren't <laughs> but it doesn't matter they're all getting beat up and it, some of it's such unfair criticism and now when you finally get into the this leadership seat here and you do get a lot of unfair criticism but that's again every day you're putting chips in the bank and you hope when these things happen in the squad room happens that there's enough people in the squad room. We're like, eh, you know, yeah. I know that guy. And eh. yeah. like we have to give second chance. Yeah. yeah. That comes up a couple of times. Like I've had, you know, conversations in squad where like someone will say, Hey, I heard, yeah, yeah I heard this one. Someone told me this happened in their squad room and they said this happened. And I'm like, okay, well none of us were there. 
like I hear what you're saying. None of us were there. Let's just think about the fact that we didn't hear the actual words come out of their mouth. So yeah. we can't judge them based on someone. It's like hearsay. You can't judge them like based on someone else's story that you weren't there for. Well, this is why they make TV shows off of cops, right? They don't do it on a lot of other professions, but they love cops because it's, it's all drama. Yeah. There's a lot of soap opera that goes on here. It's like a high school around here. It's, it's, it's like it. nonsense. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, okay. So you spent 25 years doing this. Yeah. What would you say looking back on it? I feel like I know the answer, but what would you say is your favorite? What was your favorite time? Working oh, here? certainly working patrol back in the, the B car. Uh, people in command have laughed before that when they tell their stories at their retirement, they never tell it about the exciting meeting they went to. Yeah. They, they tell it about their days in a patrol car and, you know, making a difference with somebody on a, on a crime issue. So yeah. Yeah. Even now when I talk to my kids or something else about a, a police story, it's always about the patrol. time. Certainly a police story that comes to mind that like something that stands out. Sure. Uh, and we all have our gory crime stories and, so as a sergeant, there was one, it was, oh, you know, once in a lifetime, um, it was intended to be a murder-suicide on a husband-wife that was breaking up, and uh, she had come to their apartment building to talk to him about their splitting up, and she had given their mutual young elementary school son to the neighbor to watch while she talks to the father about splitting. And the neighbor eventually called us because it's like, I haven't heard from her. I don't know where she is. I still got her kid and something really funky is going on in there. And uh, long story short, when the officers kick the door open because there's some signs of bad things happening, right inside the front door is the husband who has taken a butcher knife and disemboweled himself. And he's still there with the butcher knife threatening the officers as they're coming in the door as he's throwing parts of his intestines at the officers. And so a couple of the officers have to struggle with him and disarm him and hold him while others are stepping over him to get to where the wife is, who's been murdered in the back. And so now you have really a a three part catastrophe. You have a vicious murder. You have a suspect who is in the worst state of physical health that you're going to need to get some Charles Manson murder scene. And you have the emotional impact of this young kid who is going to need some support because he's, He's lost both his parents. One's going to prison forever, and one is deceased. And uh, that was such a tough incident for a lot of reasons. Uh, one of my coworker friends, um, you know, ended up losing his job out of it because of the emotional impact out of it. It was it was too much. It was the trauma was overwhelming, and it ended up in a, a, a being a career ending event. And then uh, it wasn't but a few weeks later, we had a murder suicide of a young mother who was going through postpartum depression, who uh, killed her infant, stabbed to death, and then killed herself over the infant. And so some of the same people involved in that original were now on this one. And it it, can't help but impact you of the things the public really never knows. Do you understand the, the craziness that these officers see, the impact on them emotionally? I mean, it'll tear your heart your heart out on either one of these scenes and yet the same people are doing this day in and day out and how can you not take this home and how do you repress all of that sorrow and human misery and um anyway as people ask me that question through my career is you know do you remember one thing i remember the a tremendous pride i felt in the officers working those scenes and how professional they were to do some incredibly difficult 
work and wake up the next day and start over and do it again. It just, uh, you know, this is why I love the people who work here. That um, I'm imagining this whole scene while you explain it. And I'm thinking about the officers, like what, what kind of, I guess, support the officers would have had leaving the scene. I mean, obviously we have to, we have certain things we do for the family and for the, the people involved, the child, well, obviously they, they're going to have to deal with the system now, I'm sure or something going with family members, but the officers leaving these two scenes and you said one officer, it was a career ending event. Well, on the second incident was a second officer lost his career. So we two officers and two events. When you say lost, like they chose to leave or I don't uh, know if you even want to get into the specifics, but I, I wouldn't say they chose to leave as much as it's an honest conversation we have to have with ourselves and our officers that they are seeing and doing things that the only equivalent is, you know, soldiers in combat. And we're not soldiers. You know, this is a right. connection with the community, but they're seeing violence at such a level that most people never see. And when you connect it to the emotional parts of children and you connect it to the emotional impacts of your own personal life and where the dots connect for you personally, because both of the officers we lost here were both, I mean, great human beings, physically fit. I mean, these are tough people emotionally and physically, but for reasons that are personal to them, it was very impactful so much so that it was detrimental to them coming back and being effective police officers for the next incident that might be very similar. And so, well, I, I I don't want to say they, they didn't quit. They didn't resign. They just had to have an honest conversation where I can't honestly come back and be successful at this job, help my peers and, and the public, um, I'm going to need to find some other kind of employment because this is, I've reached my, my cups full. Is there anything that the department did or maybe the association did for them to help them? So the association or even any of the other officers on these scenes. We, yeah. I don't remember at the time if we were doing anything specifically at the department. So the department did things called like critical incident debriefs and they bring in uh, the department psychologist to hold a kind of a round table conversation and make sure everybody could kind of get it out. But the short answer is that's not enough. And we could tell that wasn't enough. Having a one-time sit-down in a group is not personal enough because everybody's got a different you know, temperature gauge on what's going on here. Right. The POA years ago recognized that we needed something different outside of the city mainstream, and that's why we have Dr. Klein, who himself was a Long Beach police officer, who understands the culture of cops and have had him available for many years and i will tell you having worked in this building where dr klein's at um he is and has been for decades fantastic fantastic however you can't deny the fact that there are as a younger generation of people coming through their styles are different there and the culture of police work was changing to be more accepting of help if it was truly available our problem is as cops, we don't trust anybody but cops. Right. <laughs> we don't trust politicians. We don't trust victims and suspects. We don't trust the press. We don't trust anybody. And so we want somebody who gets us. And so be- shortly before I came, Peel Bray President um, Steve, the then president, and I were at a meeting up in Sacramento with a bunch of California associations, a bunch. And it was the Orange County Sheriff's Union who had talked kind of in casually about a group that they were in contact with who was helpful for these kind of things. And we were at a time when we needed something additional here, in addition to Dr. Klein to supplement and help. Right. And that's when the Counseling Team International came to our our, our door. 
Uh, we did all of our work at the association. We then brought them to contact with the chief. The chief's in a tough spot because he's getting city hall HR that's telling him, here's where we want to go. I don't, they don't know these outside vendors. Why would we spend money when we have our own in-house stuff? And so the union gets involved in the fight of saying, hold on, right? Your service while there is just a check in the box. I've got people who actually make a difference. And so for a period of time, the POA paid the bill, not the city. Oh, really? We paid the bill. When we got people who needed help, an opportunity to go get help, and it was their coming back and reaffirming that we we think this is an opportunity for us that's uh, not a replacement of Dr. Klein, but a supplement, a, a different opportunity. Some people like vanilla, some people like strawberry, and you know, this is going to be, be helpful. That finally got us over the red tape and bureaucratic hurdles you have to get through to get City Hall to actually fund <laughs> something that is necessary. And uh, it was in those same kind of times early um, when the city was taking on this process when Don Campbell, a uh, retired sergeant, committed suicide over at the East Station. Mm-hmm. And this newly hired group of people were there in the blink of an eye and helped through that process enough that the chief saw there's real value here. And uh, a lot of work was done by both the POA and the department then to make sure that this became a permanent fixture for us. So I, I, it's interesting. I didn't know that the, the TTI was around before that. I, yeah. I, Cause I think that's when we started hearing about them, right? When the department took over probably the, the you, P, POA found them, POA vetted them, POA, helped get the city connected with them. POA funded them until finally it was accepted and part of our mainstream. That's really great. Like I, I mean, I view CTI, I think, you know, you said some people like chocolate, some people like vanilla, but even then there's a multitude of, of therapists in CTI that you can, if you don't connect with one, you can find another one in that group that you can connect with. Yep. Um, but I think the problem even still today, the stigma is calling the number just calling the number, not, not knowing, I know it's confidential, but calling the number because people are still like, I don't want to talk to anyone. I can handle it on my own. And I don't think it's, com- you know, if they think it is the departments, it's departments behind it. I don't try like the trust sure. until they do it. Yep. 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 It, it, so it's funny. I was having this conversation earlier today. One of the hardest things to move is culture, just you know, your, your vibe and your culture. And uh, when this new opportunity arises, the only thing that will make it available and used is if other officers are telling their peers it's safe, it's effective, it's okay. Right. Right. That's, that's what makes it work. It, and we knew that coming in. If they come in and they bomb in the first few people, you'll never see us again. Right. And, uh, and so uh, we've been fortunate where there's been a couple guys, including you know, big-time guys, SWAT guys, who have come out and said, you know, I've been through some crazy stuff and I needed to talk to somebody and I – I felt something positive coming from this group. Well, that word of mouth from people who are credible, you know, really has value for them. Yeah. And people, I mean, when I was going through stuff, like we said, rich earlier, rich and even other people on the department were like, Hey, you might want to check this out. Like I've used it. Maybe you should check it out. And it wasn't like the first time they said it, they wasn't like, Oh yeah. I'm like, okay, I'll sign up for it. Yeah. But it was talking over and over again. And like, okay, beginning to build that trust of you. Okay. You, I trust you, so I'm going to, I'll call them. So this is part of the cop culture that's still part of the problem. We are professional fixers. 
we are professional peacemakers, right? When we go to the chaos, we bring the peace. When we've got your problem, we're going to fix it within the boundaries of the law, right? We're fixers. And then we need fixing. <laughs> right. <laughs> and we don't want to admit that the, you know, the guy who fixes stuff needs, needs fixing. fixing. And that's why you see problems in personal lives with officers and their, their marital lives is because all day, every day, what I do is fix everybody's problem. I can't have the problem. Right. They've got the problem. <laughs> yeah, people might be worried about like, oh, what's the what's the department going to think if I'm going to therapy sure. or whatever it is. But yeah, I think that yeah, like you hit the nail on the head right there. Just like the idea of like, hey, I'm I can I can take care of myself. Like I'm fine. Yeah. Until you realize it's you're too late. You said like family's destruction or personal destruction or whatever it is. Right. And this was part of the conversation with the POA and the the command staff. And I got to give uh, Chief Luna his his credit on this. When we had some officers who were fearful, am I going to lose my job if I go out to get some help? And the chief recognizing that you know, this is a really good officer. This is, I need 30 year career out of this guy. And the fact that he's having some issues right now that just need help, good for him for And if I step on him, nobody else is going to get it. And right. so it's, it's a risk for the employer to say, that's okay. And, um, those are the conversations that the members never know because they're, there's some really personal, intimate level details that they need help with that come through this office that between phone calls and counselors and things you're connecting dots and getting them help but you can't go back to a squad room and say hey remember officer smith and you know and officer smith needed all this help and we got him help oh, yeah. like, officer smith's like i don't want to. yeah no yeah <laughs> and and that stuff is routine it happens out of here quite a bit i think that i think that if we continue to say like acknowledge hey i needed help i went there yeah. people say it out loud and they're okay being vulnerable other people will be apt to doing it as well absolutely true um, okay, so uh, obviously you said patrol. I knew you were going to pick patrol as your favorite time as a police officer. I mean, I think you said, like you said, we were talking. I was talking about this the other day. You don't talk about stories, you know, that aren't all police stories or have to do with when you were a police officer. Even as a sergeant, like yeah, I know you mentioned stories as a sergeant, but even as a sergeant, it's different. Yeah, than being like the first one on scene and seeing something and and being in the chaos. Yeah. Can you, by the time we you get, we get there, it's a little bit less chaotic. Things are kind of cooled down, or something's going on that we need a or containment versus the actual chaos most of the time. Um, so what are you up to now? Are you still involved with the department of the POA um, while you're on your own time? Are you retired <laughs> or are you out doing other stuff? So uh, right when I retired, my wife and I bought um, a home. And so my intent was to take a few months off, do stuff with the house, and then find something fun to do. Uh, but unfortunately for all of us, uh, within a month or two of retiring, here comes COVID. And so oh, yeah. there's not going to be a lot of opportunities. We're all going to hunker down and do the COVID thing. So I ended up kind of refocusing my time on a lot of the construction and things around the house. I've got some stepkids who are superstar athletes. So I became the the Uber rides for softball and baseball and all their activities. And um, I've kind of joked with people that I have not had a boring day yet. Every day I find something fun to do. On the POA side, um, there was an, a void here, a need to try to get some messaging out via social media, just let people know we're here, we're the good guys. And so I've tried to help uh, Rich out by doing some of the social media for him on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Oh, okay. the, the problem is that I'm, I'm old 
and uh, I don't, you know, have the hip stuff that uh, you know, twenty year old could probably do a thousand times better than me. But That's anything, funny. anything I can do to help Rich. So you're out. in charge of the Instagram page. Yeah, but in charge is a Rich is always Rich is okay, in charge so of everything. You are managing. Yeah, but I'm whatever he needs done, I'll do. I'll do for him. And um, and then again, I I talk to Rich frequently, and I'll, uh, wherever I can help him, I'll I'll help him. That's good. Well, I appreciate you still being involved, and I know this is home for you, and where you know your family grew up, and where you grew up. So yeah, it's really cool. Three generations of us working here. You know, it's more than seventy five years of nonstop fosters before we finally all retired so how's your family doing like your brothers and your dad is your dad still alive dad's still alive dad's in, in fact i was on the phone with him shortly oh, yeah, before this right. conversation <laughs> that's always a weird question i'm like i don't know if i should ask this question <laughs> oh no I, I get it um you know everybody's healthy happy everybody survived through covid right you know we have the same life trials as everybody else has and readjusting and um the two of us myself and my brother billy who retired at the same time um because of covid and life circumstances we haven't jumped on any kind of new career path yet but i'm sure we will we'll find something that's that's uh fun and life fulfilling but not a requirement right that's you don't i won't need it for the paycheck but i want to do it to help out wherever i can my younger brother michael who was here for a number of years and got injured and had to medically retire uh has since become an attorney and a a very successful attorney he's done well and has helped out a bunch of our cops with things like wills and trusts and real estate and everything. My, Michael's one of the smartest guys I've I've ever met. So, uh, you know, I don't know if this is a plug for Michael. We can, yeah, we can plug Michael. <laughs> Anybody who needs uh, some kind of legal assistance, he's he's as good as they get, and he certainly is very uh, uh, police friendly and, and yes. does everything he can to bend over backwards to help. Yeah, I've been to Michael. Yes, it's a, yeah, it's a, we can plug in. What's the is it Mike? What's the whole uh, his company called? He is the law firm. Stand by. I'll, I'll pull out his phone. <laughs> if we're going to do a commercial, I'm going to do it right. <laughs> uh, Michael's work number is 562-420-1351. And, and part of what makes Michael awesome, and I'll, just, I'll share this, um, when he became a, a young attorney, he teamed up with a very older attorney, kind of a built base. And his partner, I think, was in his 90s, but he was looking for someone, you know, young upstarter to help keep the business going. And Michael not only was helping him and, and taking over the business, but on a personal side was taking care of them. And his older partner has since passed away. Michael has the business. And the uh, older partner's spouse with no children is still surviving. And Michael, more than just a business relationship, is taking care of oh, wow. a lot of her needs. Also, he's just a, a good guy to kind of step in that void and take care of her. Well, that's really, that's really good to hear. Yeah. And he, he was on, how long was he on a police department? Oh, again, I'm guessing, I think it was like seven, seven years and he got injured uh, twice really bad, his back uh, later. But uh, before I even came on the department when I was still in the Navy, um, Michael got seriously hurt with his head taken in a fight with a guy who was a drug dealer. Uh, Michael got pulled into a wrought iron fence and cracked his skull open and took 40 something stitches around his skull and was out for, for months. Yeah. Wow. And then came back, worked a number of in patrol a number of different spots in patrol and then uh in another fight got his back really hurt and it was like i'm a young man yeah. <laughs> i'm taking a lot of abuse here i think he going off going off the department was probably the best at that point yeah I, and michael super street smart and it and could have done really well here but i think it was probably the right time and right decision and uh he's a great lawyer so for the, all of us who benefit from his services that 
thankful. Yeah. Well, anyone that doesn't, doesn't have a trust, you probably get a trust. <laughs> so there you can go see Michael. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you coming on today. Uh, is there anything that you want to leave people listeners with, like as far as any like last words of wisdom or leadership skills? Yeah. So I would leave this for our working cops. Every cop tells his stories about the old days and you always hear the good old days. <laughs> there is nobody in this business who can ever say they've done more, worked harder through tougher circumstances than the cops who've been working on the streets in the last two years. It's been a a defining time for our profession and for all the pain that these guys and gals have gone through. um, You know, I think there's a lot of positive that's coming out, which is people are realizing now how important you are. The tide and pendulum or whatever you want to call it is swinging back where the people realize, okay, we'll, we'll tweak things here and there and we can, we can make some adjustments. We realize that we're constantly an evolving business. It's never stagnant. That's, that's fine. But there really is good people who work here and doing some just crazy dangerous and helpful stuff. And so my words of wisdom are, you know, if you're going home every day and you're looking in the mirror and you're saying to yourself, you know, I, I did good things today. I worked hard. I wasn't trying to just skate by. I, I really, did the extra effort to help somebody, I guarantee you when you retire and you reflect back on your, not just your career, but your life, you're going to feel really good about yourself that you did something very hard and did it right. And there's no amount of bad press, crazy politics that can ever take that away from you. It's a personal value of, I led a good life. So you know, keep the faith and, and keep doing the good stuff that you're doing and that personal satisfaction will be with you. Thank you for those good words like that. Yeah. You're, you, like I said, for me, you're always been a, a mentor and a leader and I appreciate your words and I'm sure those are listening are going to appreciate them as well. If you ever want to reach out to Jimmy, I'm sure he'll answer his phone. <laughs> answer yeah, his phone. That's true. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, sir. I'm going to put the outro music on and hopefully everything goes. Uh, you can find this episode on Apple or Spotify and then hopefully if the video works, we'll be, it'll be on YouTube as well. And um, you can find me on Instagram at AP underscore Sturgeon or at Let's Grab a Cup. Uh, Thanks again, Jimmy. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it, buddy.